Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level. So I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today we have a near-death experience that is part absolutely horrific and part inspirational. We have on the show Robin Lansung, and Robin was kidnapped and abducted when she was a child from an abusive family. Then when she woke up, she was in Africa, where there she was sold off, stuck in the middle of a civil war, was shot in the head, had this remarkable near-death experience, not once, but twice. And just, I don't want to tell you any more of this journey because it is, it is riveting to say the least. So without any further ado, let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Robin Lansung. How are you doing, Robin? I'm great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to just dive right in and because and, you've had a very interesting, I mean, your your near-death experience is pretty, from what I've seen, it's, it's a horrific scenario, um, but inspiring at the same time. So can you tell me, first of all, what was your life like prior to your near-death experience? Mm-hmm. And so I really like to place that in generational context mm-hmm. and that when parents don't have their natural instinct to care for their young, like all mammals mm-hmm. care for their young. So what happened generationally to get born into a family that's the parents aren't caring for their children and actually harming their children. Mm-hmm. So I was in that circumstance and not being watched or attended to being exposed to a lot of unsafe adults. And so that's the context from which I, the man who abducted me, spotted me as an unprotected child and chose to abduct me. Gotcha. So what was, so prior, so prior to your near death experience or abduction, what was your life like? Did you, I mean, was it, you were just basically un, uh, not taken, not looked after by your parents? Mm -hmm. And I was, I was, I'm an American. So I was living on the East coast in America Okay. and I was eight years old. And, you know, it really been a struggle to survive. And, and, and really what restored me, what kept me alive was nature and my art. Okay. So you were able to channel source energy through your artwork, essentially. Very much. Yeah. Do you know Spirograph? Oh, yeah. The little, little sets. I did Spirograph. I drew. I spent a lot of time in the woods behind my house. And so those were, yeah, like you say, that's the direct source to remember beauty and remember that there was something greater than what I was living through. And when you were going through that at, a, at such a young, I can't even imagine at such a young age, uh, your coping mechanism was your art and was nature, essentially, correct? 
Did you know that you were in a bad situation or a negative situation by, by seeing other friends or other children and saying, oh, this is not normal? Because when you're born into a scenario like that and you have no other reference point, you just think this is just the way everyone lives until you see, oh, this is not normal. Mm -hmm. I could I could notice other kids who looked like their parents cared for them. And mm. especially like when a mom would actually, you know, nurture and hold and take care of my friends, then I, I noticed the difference. And I just kind of considered them a different kind of child. And that mm. this was my life. And, you know, and so often kids internalize, well, there must be something wrong with me, that I'm right. not getting loved in that same way. So tell me what happened uh, uh, tell me about your near-death experience. Mm -hmm. um, so it was 1977, so post-Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And like I said, exposed to a lot of unsafe adults. And one of them spotted me and said, "He, I believe, as best as I've been able to put together, um, there was a Soldier of Fortune magazine was actually recruiting um, soldiers, Vietnam vets, to fight in the Rhodesian War because the Rhodesian government didn't have enough people on their side. So theoretically, as best as I can put together, he, there was a spring edition of that Soldier of Fortune magazine that was literally inviting, like, come, there was an advertisement, come be a man among men. You can have a, a gun in your hand and be here. We'll even send you money for the ticket. So I believe he was going to uh, fight in that war. And in his mind, he was going to get a daughter, which is me. And so he watched that I walked home from school and picked me up after right at the end of the school year and abducted me. And he was, people asked, did you know he was mentally not well? And of course, he was threatening my life right away. And so the strange thing about already being an abuse survivor is I was already quite quick to respond, to use my intuition to read adults and figure out what do I need to be to survive their mental thought process and what, how they see me and what do I need to become to be what they need. So, so yes, he threatened my life. He, he took me, he drugged me. Um, I don't remember the flight. But when I became conscious again, I was um, in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and on a military base. And my every moment was just figuring out how I was going to survive. And the one moment I, I just, I, I defied him because I didn't actually want to be alive anymore. And um, so he assaulted me. He broke all my ribs on one side. And it was really somebody else pulling him away from me, but they probably threatened him with a gun to get him away from me. And so I was hospitalized. But again, this is 1977 during a height of a civil war. So he just came to the hospital and got me and no one stopped him. And um, he, he ended up giving me to another man. I don't know the exchange of that, the nature of that exchange, whether, you know, there was money exchanged at all. Um, and that man ended up losing me in the bush. And so from there, again, height of this civil war, some of the more extreme soldiers, um, they actually found me, put me on a truck with them, took me back to their base and had an argument over me, whether one wanted to save me because I was a child and one wanted to shoot me. And, and the, my body just said, I don't wanna feel being killed. So I went, 
I went down, I went into what's called just nervous system shutdown, which is a state of mercy. All animals can do this. And so I went unconscious. And when I woke up again, um, the man who had won the argument to save my life was taking me um, from that most dangerous area to the border between Rhodesia and South Africa. And he was basically handing me over to a village and kind of he spoke another language, which is Venda. And so he was kind of gesturing, like, go there, little girl, go be with those people in that village. So I, I didn't go into the village yet. I spent a night in a tree by myself. I didn't know that, you know, animals can climb the tree. There's so many times I could have been taken out. And in the morning I went and I heard the women singing. And their singing is different than my singing, but I'm just going to share just a little bit of that calling, what, mm -hmm. what drew me in to connect to them. And they were grinding corn and they were together and they were looking at each other and there was warmth. And I had never met adults who were so alive, who lived with music inside them, who their every gesture was about the singing that was coming through their body. And so they spotted me, a white child, and and keep in mind this is rural, rural Rhodesia. There, there's no mixing of races, like white people are over here and black people are over yeah. here. And so to see a white child, they had just had to assume that my parents had been killed, that I was Rhodesian, and that I was just running, you know, trying to find a safe place myself. So they fed me, they took me in. The children were really the, my first experience of belonging. They were coming over and touching my white skin and my hair that was more blonde then. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And they really welcomed me in. And one of the girls uh, took me to the ceremonial fire and was putting black ash on my face to make me look more like them. And it was my first softening. Like I was so rigid. I was so tense. And it was my first deep experience of belonging. And again, one of the women sang to me. And in that moment of she was calling me closer to her, and I literally collapsed into her arms. And it was the first mothering, the first being held that I'd ever experienced in my eight years. So I thought this is my new life. I didn't understand the full context of the Civil War. Um, the women took me to the river and put clay on my broken ribs that was a huge purple bruise, and again sang to me. And then they called me to sing back to them. And when I could sing with them, they considered me well. They considered you're going to be okay, that the hatred from his assault is off you and you're gonna go through life well. So this river was a positive place to me. And one day I ventured back and I ventured to that river and I didn't know that there was a battle starting right on the other side of the river. And so one of the soldiers, uh, you know, again, I've interviewed people there, the best I can put together, he was scouting the area. And so he spotted me right across, you know, this is a very small, small river, kind of a creek. And he spotted me there by myself, um, dressed in the African clothes, and because the women had dressed me as their own. 
And immediately he brought up his gun. And when I saw his gun barrel, my heart was so broken. It was just, you know, the circle. I knew he was lined up right here. And I couldn't understand how the people of this village found me valuable, found me precious, found me worthy of caring for and being part of. And how could he see me as just erasable, as disposable? So before I could even turn to run, I was so close. I actually saw him pull the trigger and the, I heard the gun go off. And what I now know is that scopes are designed for long distance. So he was so close, the scope was off. So the bullet grazed the top of my head. It blew me off my feet. I fell to the ground, immediately was bleeding out. And I was praying for someone from my village to come find me and to help me. And what happened was my consciousness, my awareness went above my body. I was looking down and I was watching my life force ebb in and out of my body. And I thought, if that doesn't go back in and stay in my body, that's the end of me. And so it ebbed out. And then I had one more time going back in my awareness went through my heart through the back of my heart. And I went into a tunnel that was so fast, but I was completely held I was being transported somewhere else. And there was a freedom, a peace of I no longer had to fight to survive. I no longer had to do all I could to keep this body alive. I could just rest and be held and be taken where I was going, where this wise source was taking me. And when I landed, at first I couldn't really perceive very much, but eventually I could kind of open more my new eyes. And I was seeing that it was a golden light area and that there was two female presences with me and they were touching my face and I realized, oh, I have a face. And they were bringing me back to being able to see the whole area I was in. And they gestured their hands over to a golden glowing sphere. And I remembered that golden glowing sphere that I could go in there and be fully restored and that the energy of that source wouldn't be diminished at all by all my need. And the women were, their skin was black and they had yellow dresses. And I knew them, I remembered them as my deepest sisters, that they had always been there to greet me and I had known them for lifetimes. And so they were gesturing, oh, you can go home to source. But I wasn't done with my African family. I wanted them to still be part of it. I wanted to be connected to them because they were the first people who really loved me. And so I started wondering, where have they gone? Why am I separated from them? And this wondering, this kind of not being ready to go home to source yet, sent me backwards. And I started falling backwards through layers, through layers. And I landed in this new place, which wasn't quite as warm. It was more like um, Ireland on a cold, cloudy day. And I was at this bottom of this stairwell. And it was, it was kind of cold. And I looked at this stairwell and it was so worn because so many 
people had walked down the stairwell and I thought I must be someplace important because so many people have journeyed here before. So I was a bit disoriented and I was kind of wishing for some help, but, but again, I was a very defended child. So this elder man showed up right in front of me. I didn't know where he came from. And he looked old and rickety and he was offering his hand to help me up. And again, I wanted help, but I was fighting help as so many abused children do. And so I finally accepted his help and he led me down this stairwell, this more stone stairwell into, we went through a stone archway into this dark cave. And I thought, oh, I had it better before. Why am I going into this dark cave? And I didn't understand at that moment that I still had more to purify, more to clear out before I could go home to source. And in that dark cave was all my repressed emotion, all my disturbance about having been abused. So I was getting confronted with the faces of the people who had abused me, and I was recoiling and fighting the whole experience. And I turned to him to want to run away. But in that moment, I saw myself through his eyes, that there was nothing wrong with me that made the abuse happen in the first place. It was really the deep confusion and lostness of the adults I was surrounded by. And he wasn't trying to fix me or change me because I was okay already. And when I felt that through my whole heart, through my whole being, I was done with the dark cave. And we came out to a, another landscape that was living stars in the sky. And I suddenly understood this man could go anywhere. And he chose to come help me to not get lost in my own dark cave. And so my faith in him radiated through every part of me. And I put my hands in his and I said, where are we going next? And telepathically, he told me, we're jumping off this cliff, we're diving into the night sky. And we're allowing ourselves to fall into this next freedom, this next layer. And so I did that, I was falling with him and we were like birds going through the night sky. And he said to me, this is dying. And so I knew dying was held, guided, and graceful. And so we fell through that night sky until we were in morning sunrise. And again, there was the golden glowing sphere. And he gestured and telepathically said, go there, little girl. And then he departed past her mind, but I was changed. I had some of his wisdom, some of his allowing grace inside me and so i was breathing that in and breathing that out but again i thought of my african family and i wanted to share all of this with them and so i wondered where they went where are they and that curiosity again took me away from going directly home to source and took me down into another landscape where i was searching for them and i started to get worried what if they've been shot what if something has happened to them and I got very panicked in my search for them. And again, I didn't understand that it was, um, I was seeing into the future and that again, this was war and that I had this fear that they were, that they were fallen, that they had been taken down. 
And, and so I was in that panic, but then again, a grace came through me, a humbling and accepting. And I cried until I was like a storm cleared out. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I understand now that was preparing me for what was going to happen later in the war. So after I was done crying, I found another being in this open green field. And he was the presence of peace. He was a, I saw him as a man. He had a beard. He had a sheep herder staff and a robe. And I ran to him to ask him, how do I get back to my family? How do I get back to connection? And then before him, I was in connection. I was in the belonging to my universal family. And I no longer was grasping for, for what I'd had here on earth. And when I stood before him, his face was changing and it changed to a person from the village. And my love for that man who had helped me bloomed open. It changed to somebody I didn't know and it changed to a lion. And at some point he leaned his forward forward and touched his forehead to mine and I could see as he sees, which was this vast universal connections that were all like gems that we can strengthen our connection with our loving heart and being generous and compassionate with one another. And that when we do that, when we send compassion and generosity through those living lines of connection from our heart to another's, we enliven the matrix of life. We enliven these universal connections. And I was visiting myself in the future, visiting every frog, every tree, every mountain, and understanding that no matter what, I'm always in this belonging. I'm always in this universal connection. And that my job is to remember how to, again, be in that loving presence, be in that giving and receiving in my heart. So when he stood up again, again, my faith in him was absolute. And I knew that in connecting to him, through him, that I was going to be connecting to my divine source. So I literally leaned my whole being into his. And we traveled through, and again, we came out in a new landscape. And it was actually being above, looking down in this earth plane. And I was mm -hmm. looking down on my body, and that I had bled out. And my mother had found me, my African mother, and she was stopping the blood flow in my head. And he was kind of giving me a choice of like, you can go back right now or you can keep rising up, going home to source. So I chose to go home to source, rising up. And my, my mama, my African mama, she was wailing into the sky. And I wanted her to understand I'm totally fine. I'm held, I'm not in pain. And as I rose up, veils closed behind me, I, kind of like leaves closing the secret garden. And I heard her singing and calling on the ancestors in the land. But again, I was so entranced and amazed, like beings were going through me and purifying me. And I was going home to the great source that I call the great heart. 
and understanding that this great heart had sung me into being, had called me into life by, sil- by singing me into life. And so I was going home to that source, but my African mama's singing was ca- also still catching my attention. And so I was kind of in between both the great heart singing and my African mama singing. And I turned towards listening to her and she had called on the ancestors in the land to call me back to life, to remind me I hadn't yet done my purpose, which was to sing to people, call them back to life, just as she was calling me right now. And that intrigued me, that remembering my purpose. And so I turned around knowing I could still belong with the great heart and I came back to life. And as I was traveling back in the tunnel, traveling back to this realm, this dimension, I met another being that I perceived as a a golden cougar. And she was telling me, we have all these art images for you to draw to help remind you and others that we belong to the great heart, that we belong to source. And when you go back, it's gonna be incredibly hard. You're gonna suffer so much more losses. But when you're safe, we're gonna give you these images one after the other to continue to draw, to remember your connection to divine source. And I had one more being that I met um, right between the veil between the living and the dead. And I call her the grandmother of all races. And she sang inside me as if I was a cathedral. And again, she was saying, it's going to be so hard when you go back. But remember that you always belong here, no matter what you have to do to survive, no matter what anyone says to you about not being worthy, you always belong here home. So with that last being sung to, I was born back into my body, which again was pain in pain. I felt so fragile. And it was my African mama holding my body that made me feel real at all. So they took me back to the village. They sang songs. They put um, plant medicine on my wounds. And they cared for me. And because I belonged to them, I knew I was going to be okay. I knew I was going to survive. And I was so changed. I could know their every thought. I could know their every intention. And that just like we look at people on the surface, I could now see people's internal world and understand all of us in connection to one another. And that's been a a really strong gift that as I healed from the trauma, not only did the war memories come back, but the intuition and the abilities of having that telepathic abilities and abilities to understand people deeply also came back as I did my trauma recovery. That is such a, um, it, it, it starts off horrific uh, and ends off beautiful. Uh, it really is beautiful. I have a few questions. When you were in the other side, as you were with the mentality of a child, correct? So yes. you were. So that explains the imagery and the beings that you met along the way: the cougar, the lion face. These are things you can recognize and not and understand cognitively from 
where you had gone, at least where you had evolved to on earth at that point. Is that a fair statement? Mm -hmm. I agree. So when you were on the other, did you know you were on the other side? Because you were, what, how old were you, eight or nine at that point? I was eight. You were still eight. So you're still eight. You're still eight years old. So did you understand death? Did you understand heaven? Was that ever that any of these dogmatic religious ideas ever kind of programmed into at a young age, a younger age? <laughs> um, I was not raised Christian. And so it's very interesting that the being I meant, some people might consider Deshua. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I kind of like to switch that up of it's not always our training in terms of mm -hmm. what we see. And in in my in the death experience I had several days later, I believe I the being I saw was Shiva. And so mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't raised Hindu and exposed to anything Hindu. So my view is that we see what's needed. Like what what does our soul need to do our healing, to do our recovery? So yeah, I wasn't raised with Christian ideas. You know, obviously being American, I'm I'm steeped in Christian culture. Sure. But I felt like it was just the the medicine that I needed is what I met. And and for my experience of talking to so many near death experiencers is that each experience is custom built for the experiencer, for what they need at that moment, and also what. It, it, what is makes them feel comfortable. Generally speaking, there are some that have hellish experiences, but then they've even said, and many times it's like, I needed to go through that. I created that because that's what I believed I needed to do because I was Christian. I, under, I was told that was hell, that I felt unworthy and I had to go through that and then be saved. Um, but it's so fascinating that you said you had a second near-death experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, as best I can put together, about two days later, the soldiers came back. Ugh. And and so they attacked the village. And one other of the mothers was, uh, she and I were escaping. She was had me on her hip and we were running. And she was shot from behind and we both went down mm -hmm. and when i would looked around everybody i loved was down so just like i had seen in the first in the first death experience to prepare me for that magnitude of loss mm -hmm. and so while she was still living she was yelling at me to keep going and so she had never yelled at me so i i followed her instructions and as best as i could i kept going and that's been the hardest thing for me to heal, to not be able to help somebody who had helped me and loved me so much. And, you know, many people who are war survivors or extreme trauma survivors understand that it's painful what happened to us personally, but it's almost even harder to heal what we witnessed for those we loved. And mm -hmm. when we weren't, when we felt so powerless. Um, so I made it about another 20 steps um, before I started bleeding again, you know, from having been gone down on the ground. And the amazing thing is I've been able to go back and retrace this. And so mm. I now know I was running a little bit downhill in sand. And so I fell forward and again was bleeding out again and had a second death experience. 
And this one was very different entirely. I, when I became aware again, I was in a white landscape and there was someone singing to me and they were singing, you will live, you will live. And kind of to a nurse, nursery rhyme. Right, right. And, you know, they knew I had a brain injury. They knew I needed it really simple. And I, and it took me a bit to comprehend, like, you will live. Are they talking to me? And, oh, does that mean I'm dead? And, and so I asked to see who's singing to me. And I got moved closer to a veil that I was looking through. And again, on the other side of this veil was this seated in lotus uh, position, this blue being, his skin was kind of a purple blue and he had a black bun on top of his head. And I knew he was masculine and feminine at the same time, powerful destroyer and creator and restorer at the same time. And I thought, how am I so privileged, so lucky to be in his presence? Like I felt so small in the magnitude of who he is. And there was all kinds of decoration around him, but I was so focused on his face because I knew if he wanted me to die, I would just die and be re reborn and recreated. And I knew if he wanted me to live that that would happen also because he started to show me mountains crashing together or kind of two land masses crashing together to make a mountain. And he has said, shall we destroy the land and make the mountain so that you can see this beautiful mountain? And I was like, I don't like the destruction part. And then he started bringing the mountain down grain by grain, sand by bit. And, and he said, shall we destroy the mountain so you can have the beach? And I was like, could I have the beach and the mountain? I don't like the destruction part. And so he was showing me what looks like total destruction now breaks open the ingredients for new creation. And, and your life looks entirely destroyed right now. But someday, this is going to be part of your new creation. It's going to have broken you open to be something you wouldn't have been otherwise. So he returned me back to my body, but he spoke to me. And again, it was always three, three words at a time, crawl forward now. And he gave me the power in my completely weakened body to crawl forward. And he, and he got across to me, you have to get away from the massacre because the animals are going to come tonight from the smell of the blood. You have to crawl further away. And so he held the plan. I didn't know how I was going to crawl forward. And he was guiding me to crawl forward towards a well because he knew in the morning there was going to be a woman from another village that would come to the well and find me. And I... I didn't want to live. I just lost everyone I loved. I had no reason to want to be here. But it was, and I'm still searching for a word because Shiva doesn't have a will, but it was his will that kept me going, that kept me here. And, and in the morning, a woman named Mia Lucy found me. And since she took me back to her homestead and cared for me and sang to me, and eventually got me across the river, um, across the Limpopo River into South Africa, where I was then hospitalized. And from the hospital, I was brought back to the U.S. So when you were talking to Shiva, were you in physical form and the, this was all mental happening in the experience? Or were you actually, your consciousness was up there or wherever Shiva was? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I was completely in the realm with him. 
So then when you're saying you had to keep crawling, was that a plan or yeah, that's why I'm confused. Where he returned me back to my body. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after the, after the veil and the conversation, he returned you back to, and then guided you while you were back in your body. Yes. What was the feeling like when you were on the other side versus being, were you slammed back into your body? Were you, you know, did you feel the pain all of a sudden? Were you painless on the other side? What is the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, painless, like no pain on the other side. And especially with that one, I didn't even, I didn't even really pay attention to like what this was that was perceiving. I was just two eyes watching mm -hmm. and taking in all that he was offering me. Mm -hmm. And I had some sense of self just because I was in relation to him and knew that I was not him. And so when I was returned back to my body, of course, it was incredibly painful. I had fallen forward. My neck was injured. I had a brain injury. Like I had been laying on my arm for the whole time I was crossed over. And so my arm was completely numb and paralyzed. So again, no reason to want to be here. And it was entirely because he has a mission for me that he was commanding me to live and telling hey. me this will come full circle in some way. And it has. <laughs> and it has without question. Now, you had never seen Shiva prior to this. No iconology, no images, no one ever told you a story. So this was completely out of the blue, like, out of the blue, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a white girl growing up on the East Coast of America, like in the in the like, '70s, in the '70s, yeah. no less. Yeah, like my school was white. There was like one Indian child in my school. That's that's all I had, and you know, he just didn't talk about anything of his culture, so I had no exposure whatsoever. That's really fascinating. Again, because I've. Generally speaking, the deities will come that you're familiar with, but you were so young that it really didn't matter because anyone who showed up, as long as they were warm and supportive, it seems like, would do the job for what you needed to do. So Shiva shows up, Jesus shows up. It does. You don't have any uh, disagreements with that because you don't know who they are. You know, Santa Claus could have showed up and you would have been like, cool, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> And, you know, and then it gets into the interesting question of other lifetimes for me. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Was, was I Hindu before? And, you know, did I already have that in, oh, my, interesting. in my soul's makeup of this is somebody who is going to care for me in moments of destruction? Interesting. interesting. So that would be a very interesting way of looking about it because somewhere inside of your your being, this is a comforting figure. Maybe not consciously because in this life, doesn't make sense, but what's and again, that's why past lives have such a massive, uh, massive effect on our current life, whether it be, you know, <laughs> the way you are, uh, your fears, your strengths, all that kind of stuff. Like if you're fear of heights and all of a sudden you decide you, you discovered you're afraid of heights, <laughs> maybe you were thrown off of a off of a pyramid at one point or another in Meso Mesoamerica. And you're like, you know what? I really don't like heights anymore. Uh, I've had other people, I've had other people who've said that they've been um they were afraid of coming out spiritually to their family because in a prior life, uh, they were burned at the stake as a witch, and the family's the one who threw them under the bus. Mm. Really fascinating, really, really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> 
when I work with people and I help them come home to their intuition, home to their body, there, there's a couple things that are very common themes in just what you're saying about what happened to us when we showed up in our power, when we, when we did our gift. You know, were we in a repressive time period where that just didn't go well? You know, <laughs> or maybe it was the end of our life. And also we, I love to teach people, and you know, it's been such a journey myself to come home to my power, that we're often, we've had negative role models of what is it like to be powerful. And, and so many people have misused power. And so to come into our alignment, to come into our agency, to come into our gift, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of just shaking in your boots and saying, I'm going to commit to this anyway. And at this point, I've said yes to what's been given to me, the gifts that have been given to me so many times. There's no going back. Yeah. But yeah, but you have to just do that, like shake in your boots. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to say yes to I've been given so much and it's my job to give it back in all the ways that I can. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's really interesting you say just show up because so many times we we have to show up to do our job or to do our, our, our purpose, our thing, but be open to the process of where it all leads us because we have no understanding of where it's going to lead us in many, many, many ways. Our minds are so much smaller than what the grand plan is for our lives. But the showing up part is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the embodiment piece that goes with mm-hmm. that. And of course, you know, I've had to do years and years of trauma recovery and healing. And I'm at this point now where I'm too like the... I'm to the creativity, the pleasure, the sensuality, the like the juicy part of being alive. I just came back from Costa Rica from a week-long dance retreat. Mm-hmm. And it was just so great to get to move my body with other human beings who were saying yes to aliveness, yes to nature around mm-hmm. us and within us. So I love to inspire and encourage people's confidence to do their trauma recovery work. One of my colleagues says, when you transform trauma energy, it can become creative energy. Now, let me ask you, when you were flown back to the United States, what, what happened? Uh, that wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a very good family reunion. My family was, again, about denial, about repression, about we don't talk about this. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems so flimsy to have, like, if we don't talk about it, it never happened. Right. But, but when it's so generationally instilled, it, it silences the truth. And so when I tried to speak of it, my mother unfortunately hit me across the face. You know, I have a brain injury. Um, you know, I have a, still a healing wound on top of my head. And she said, don't ever talk about this. And so I didn't. And so my parents are both crossed over now, and we never spoke of it. They never asked me. And my siblings, we've never spoken of it. They've never asked me. And so so I always encourage people, do your healing work with the people who are ready, interested, willing to walk the journey with you. Because your family may or may not be those people. And they might play the part that they needed to play in your life at the Mm -hmm. time that you came in. Um, Mm -hmm. You said something really interesting, though. 
um, that this experience is going to crack you open. I really want you to dig into that a little bit because I think it's such an important lesson for people listening. A lot of times like, oh, bad things are happening to me or why is this happening to me or oh, this or that. And arguably you've gone through more than most, uh, you know, in this world. Um, But yet you look at things differently like that. And I think it's a very good learning lesson for people listening. Can you dig a little bit into the experience, what you went through and how it has shaped you to your path? I love that term, cracked you open to show you things or be things that you would have never been without this experience, arguably without your parents, you would have never been who you are now doing the work you're doing now, correct? Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly. And uh, when I went back uh, to Zimbabwe and I found, I retraced my steps, I found where I I had been loved, I found where I was shot, I found where I, like I said, that, that sandy hill where I went down, I found the well, and I reunited with one of the, the women who helped save my life. And um, my then husband asked me, if you could go back and erase it and change being abducted and all of this experience, would you? And I said, you know, one, it's not an option. That's just how reality happened. And two, no, because if you asked me when I was 20 and I was doing, you know, I was in inpatient trauma treatment, I would be saying like, yes. Yes. Yeah, but now on the other side of what I call the gritty years of healing, there's the fruition, there's the capacity to, I mean, like art comes through me like a river and intuition comes through me so easily. Like I can just, I, I can read people and it's not a challenge at all. It's lovely and it's fun and it's exciting. And it, to get to contribute to people's healing because I can say, I see you and I can see underlying cause of you know, people's distress. And, and what I wanna add is just give this message too early on in people's healing process isn't really kindness. Right. And to let people know like you were victimized you do feel terrible, you you do have post-traumatic stress, you do have the nightmares, and that's real. And it's going to be for some time as you do your healing process. And there's no quick jumping to where I am now. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is 30 years of healing process <laughs> and, you know, sessions and therapy and movement and dance and eating well and, um, you know, EMDR therapy. So, so I always just like to say, people keep taking your next step in your healing process, and it does get better. There are benefits, and this morning I was just—I'm working on my book about encouraging people's confidence to do their trauma resolution work, because if we stay hiding and avoiding, then the trauma is actually ruling all our years. And to just go through and turn towards compassion is turning towards our suffering and saying, I see you, this too belongs. Breathing in, breathing out, getting through it in all the different ways we can be with our suffering and actually getting to freedom, actually getting to fluidity, actually getting to creativity because connection heals self-connection, connection to nature, connection to good, safe people, that's the antidote to loneliness, to the isolation that trauma creates. And one of my favorite teachers, Daniel Siegel, he talks about 
this construct of self that we have in America, where we think we can make it on our own, or even the even the term somebody just used the term for in my book I'm writing for self help. Like there is no such thing as self help. We have to. Our trauma happened in relation to others or relation to nature. Our healing has to happen in relation to save others. So even a self help book is a relationship with the author giving their gift, helping you to your next level. Well, connection is, it's life, it's healing, it's what we're here for. What is the biggest takeaway you took from the near-death experiences specifically? Hmm, that's a great question. Just what immediately pops in mind is we're indestructible. Mm. You know, I was so little, I was so fragile. Mm. I was shot by a soldier. And I'm indestructible. We keep we keep going. And after you got back to America and you started to, I'm assuming you started to dig into, did you start digging into near-death experiences? I mean, obviously past lives, you've talked about a little bit about that. How did you start to educate yourself about Shiva and, <laughs> and this, all this oh. kind of stuff as you went through it? Yeah, Um I, I'm sure you're familiar with PMH Atwater. She's done a lot. Yeah, of, of course. Yeah, she's been on yeah. the show. Yeah, she, yeah, she's a sweetheart. She stayed with me for a, for a bit. She's a powerhouse. <laughs> oh, she's a force of nature. That's for sure. <laughs> and and she talks about when you have a childhood near death experience where you had to repress it and not talk about it. It can take thirty to forty years to actually integrate. So when I went back, I just had to survive more abuse until I was 18 and got out and went to college and never went back home. And I just survived. I, I just was making it through. My body brought up the trauma um, my second year of college, and I couldn't repress it anymore. Because I have such a huge divine calling, there was no sitting on this for decades. It just was boom coming in through my body. So I was catapulted into my healing process, whether I <laughs> liked it or not. And so, so doing all that work, coming full circle, is it's taken a, lo a long time. So I didn't actually start to name it as a near-death experience until I was 42. And, really? so it was a, and, I, and it was kind of repressed with the trauma. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so um, when I met my now former husband, um, he started asking me questions about it. And so I started bringing out the war trauma. And then at the same time, the near the beauty of the near death experience emerged. And he just kept interviewing me and asking me questions and it kept bringing it out. And that's my that's my me memoir that's not yet published, but going to be an audiobook soon. Mm hmm. And so it was, I, I didn't get it. Like I, I, I had written the whole part about my experience with, you know, this man with a beard and the sheep herder staff. And he read it and he said, he looked at it and he's like, so the Lord is my shepherd. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I was like, I didn't get it. I just was like, it's just the being who helped me. And I didn't get that it was Shiva for a long time. I just started describing it and people were like, is that Krishna is? And then I realized, oh, creator destroyer. And 
people had to point this out to me, like the fact that that Jesus's face turned into a lion. Like people, I, I wrote about it on Facebook and somebody said, do you know about the tribe of Judah and like the lion? And I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> so it was people mirroring this back to me that I, it was just my direct experience as a child. Right. I didn't have interpretation. So I wrote <laughs> it as that of just straight childhood, no interpretation. And what I love is when I have people around the world edit my book, because I didn't interpret, they interpret it based in their cultural context. Because I want it to be what it means to each person to serve right. them as they need. Because my interpretation actually doesn't matter. You know, my interpretation of my art, my death experience, it doesn't matter. It's about what's medicine for each person, what's relevant for their next step. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, uh, Robin. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Mm, connection. Heart open connection with self, with others, with body sensation, with loving what you eat, with present moment noticing pleasure. Like what's it like to go outside and feel a warm breeze on you? What's it like to experience somebody's helping somebody else through grief or their heartbreak and then watching like when they're done crying, like what their face looks like? Mm. What's it like to make really delicious blueberry tart and eat it and have <laughs> cardamom and you know juiciness? So what's it like to look at my own art and be amazed and be like, oh my God, who did that? Oh, that, that came through my hands. So curiosity, compassion, loving kindness, present moment, meditation that helps you know your body sensation. And again, I just came back from this dance retreat and just to lean on other people and have them lean on me and dance together to incredible music that musicians have invested their time and their gift into making like, that's juicy. I, I want a tart now for some strange reason. Um, <laughs> if you could go back in time and tell that little girl one piece of advice, what would it be? You're worthwhile. You're lovable. You're just fine the way you are. You don't need to strive so hard. You don't need to effort so much. It's going to work out in the big picture. How do you define God? Hmm. The great heart, the place of origination, the place where we were born out of song, a seed syllable by the great heart. Um, and what is the ultimate purpose of life? Loving one another caring for one another, increasing all the ways that we can be with suffering and say this too belongs so that we're with the full spectrum of our human experience, that we're not rejecting, you know, the boring or the dreary or the hard, that this too belongs. When I was going through my divorce, I was meditating and I had this moment of thank you. Thank you for this loss. 
it was all equal to me in that moment while I was meditating. The, the suffering, the difficulty, the abandonment, betrayal, love, sweetness, it was all equal. And where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing? Um, my website is my name, robinlandsong.com. And yeah, I, I love working with people on coming home to their body, coming home to their aliveness, their creativity, mm-hmm. you know, working through grief, working through trauma. And so I'm, <laughs> I, I live in Mount Shasta, California, and that mountain is funding me on my project. So I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I've written my manuscript, working on getting that published, making an audio book. I'm working on my helping people's confidence in their trauma resolution book. I'm making two art decks. Um, I'm recording in the studio. My You're busy. Medicine. You're busy. You're, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and do you have any parting messages for the audience? Compassion is turning towards yourself and saying, I see you. And that as long as we don't avoid our full spectrum of experience, avoid our sadness, avoid our anger, that we're going to come back into our wholeness and just turning towards ourselves. I see you, you belong, you matter. It's, it's all we really need for healing. Robin, this has been such a beautiful conversation. Thank you so, so much. I truly hope it helps people listening out there in the world. So Thank you for being so raw, so honest, and putting yourself out there in the world to help people. So I appreciate you and everything that you're doing, my dear. Thank you again for coming on the show. Mm -hmm. And thank you for all you're doing and getting so many good messages out to people. And because people are hungry and, and you're meeting and nourishing a need. I want to thank Robin so much for coming on the show and sharing her remarkable journey with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 263. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.